0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. There goes the fly ball towards left field. Going back, fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Dyrton is being mobbed as our rule would roll.
1: And out of center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm.
0: This is our Tribe History. A regular look back at professional baseball in Cleveland
1: from 1901 and beyond.
0: Here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. I really started to see that problem uh, about halfway through the 1917 season, I think. Uh, uh, not the major leagues so much as the minor leagues. Uh, the, the minors were hit really hard. Uh, a lot of the, the leagues um, shut down halfway through the season. I think something like only five of them actually finished 1917. Uh, so the major leagues really saw what was on the horizon, but the majors weren't hit that badly yet. The, the draft hadn't really started to bite until the season was almost over, and they didn't feel serious effects until the beginning of the 18 season.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Our Tribe History, the podcast that looks at the history of the Cleveland Indians. The voice you just heard was Jim Leake. He is author of From the Dugouts to the Trenches, Baseball During the Great War. And I think you can kind of guess where we're going with the podcast today. We left off after 1916, which World War I had been going on in Europe. However, the American involvement hadn't started yet. So now we're rolling into 1917, and as Jim said, you know, the war is on the horizon. People in America are starting to uh, feel a little antsy about what's coming next, and if you're a ball player on any team and a male of draft age, you're starting to get a little, uh, what's my future like? What's going to happen? So that was no different for any of the players on the Cleveland Indians team. And for Cleveland, you see it almost immediately. February seventeenth of nineteen seventeen, in the Plain Dealer, there's a mention that the team is going to be doing military drills during spring training. Uh, Jim Dunn, the owner of the club, actually served in the Iowa militia several years ago. It had mentioned, I never quite got an a exact year on that. And you run into this interesting juxtaposition between the owner who wants the team to drill. And then you had the manager who was not necessarily as thrilled. Um, Dunn had mentioned that he wanted the players to march from the hotel to the ball field. That was a distance of two miles and manager full was not happy with that uh, directive and challenged uh, Jim Dunn on that. He goes on to say that players marching with cleats, not a great idea. Uh, He was quoted saying, I think the drills at the ballpark will be fine, but I know of nothing to put ballplayers to a bad any quicker than long hikes over pavement, which makes sense if you've ever walked over pavement on spikes. It can be uh, slippery and you could fall or twist an ankle. And that's the last thing you want with any of these players is marching two miles to a ballpark and rolling an ankle. And one of the first things you begin to see as the year goes on while the team is in spring training, is hiring a drill sergeant to get the team in shape. So I was interested in how common that was. Was it just a thing the Indians were doing, or was it a league-wide thing? And Jim had this to say.
0: Uh, that was the beginning of the 1917 season, and every team in the American League had a Army sergeant assigned as a, a drill instructor. And a couple of teams in the uh, the National League did it as well, though they didn't really stick with it. This was really the idea of Van Johnson, the American League president, and uh, Cap Huston, uh, the part owner of the Yankees. So they managed to convince the um, the War Department to send them sergeants early in spring training, and they continued it uh, well into the season. So uh some teams took to it uh, fairly well some teams didn't particularly like it and the Indians were one of the teams that apparently didn't didn't care for it very much uh Tris Speaker was said to favor the drilling but some of the other players w- weren't so wild about it and uh Ben Johnson sent a telegram to the Cleveland manager uh telling him to get with the program and and the manager uh wired back uh, sort of highly that uh Uh, The Indians were drilling, and they would continue to drill, and uh, things sort of uh, calmed down after that.
1: And with Cleveland, then, they hired a drill sergeant named William Horner of the United States Coast Artillery, located at Jackson's Barracks. Manager Full had received the instructions to go ahead with the military training, if the drill sergeant could make it in time, and that drill would probably start pretty quickly on a Tuesday morning. They mentioned Horner not only has had charge of drilling the recruits at the barracks, but also has taught fraternal drill teams in New Orleans. They mentioned that rifles were probably going to be borrowed from the Washington Light Artillery. And the next day after it was announced they had their drill sergeant, he was actually already at the ballpark. The plane dealer had mentioned he had visited and was spending a few minutes with some of the guys who were actually still hanging around to start practicing the drills. And for the most part, the guys seemed pretty interested in the drilling. It mentioned that Guy Morton and Jim Bagby were interested and Clark Dickerson, who actually wanted to assist Horner with the drilling as he was a graduate of a military school where he had four years of drilling. So they had someone on the club that was already familiar with, uh, with drilling. And so you begin to wonder... Are managers actually cool with this? Do they Are they okay with their star players you know, spending half their time drilling and marching? So, again, I asked uh, Jim about that.
0: Uh, most managers went along with it, even if reluctantly. Um, it was very good publicity for the league. So I think most people put up with it for that reason, if no other.
1: I asked Jim what Ben Johnson's motivation was behind all this and, you know, what he saw in, in this drilling.
0: I I think it was, um, I think it was genuine patriotism combined with uh, a shrewd sense of public relations. He got great publicity out of it. And uh, as I said, it continued well into the season. There was actually a, a competition for the best drilled uh, team in the American League, and uh, it was the lowly uh, St. Louis Browns who actually walked away with the prize during the summer.
1: And the first any Cleveland fan would have heard of that would be on the March thirteenth, nineteen seventeen, Plane Dealer, and addressing his new uh, new students, Lieutenant William C. Harrison of the United States Artillery mentioned to the, the players fellows president Johnson of your league has offered a prize of $500 for the best drilled team. And I see no reason why you cannot win the money. If you will work hard and pay earnest attention to our instructions. Now I do, uh, sincerely wish that I could, uh, add a little more flavor to these direct quotes, like a, a Ken Burns documentary, and I'm doing my best, but you're just going to have to bear with me as I, I read some of this, because you know I think that the actual quotes from these guys, I mean, most of the primary sources, the letters, the, the documents are, are gone. So the old newspapers are great ways of discovering what was actually said by a lot of these guys and what was going on. And it was actually Jim Bagby who was getting the uh, accolades for being a good drill instructor. Both him, Bill Womby, and Clark Dickerson all acted as file sergeants during the first go at drilling with the, the drill sergeant. I mentioned that there were two squads of four that got together, and they practiced for about 10 minutes, and uh, they'd get together. And that was kind of the end of the first go of, of drills on that March day. And also good news that was mentioned in that, that news clipping was the fact that the club was going to be getting 40 rifles and bayonets to use for their marching. It mentioned that it will be harder work as carrying an army rifle for an hour is no parlor amusement. So instead of maybe marching with a bat or something else that they had laying around, they got the uh, the real deal coming towards them. And at times, the manager and the drill sergeant seemed to to butt heads a little bit. A few days later, it was mentioned that at the request of Lee Full, Lieutenant Harrison has abandoned setting up exercises as part of the military drill. Full figured the exercises were a trifle too strenuous for athletes who wished to keep their muscles pliable. Consequently, the drill will consist merely of marching and the manual of arms. So you don't want the guys working out too hard. You don't want those muscles to get too big, I guess. And uh, uh, that was you know one of his uh his ideas and by early april the gentleman that was drilling the cleveland team was recalled back to his uh his regiment he actually had some chances for promotion he was eager to get to that but like jim said Tris speaker was a was a player that was really interested in uh in the drilling and the the marching and actually then took up as temporary drillmaster So once the drill master left, he actually left Speaker a book of instructions, he said, which will help Spoke in drilling his teammates the next two weeks or until the squad reaches Cleveland. When it is possible, a National Guardsman will be obtained. So again, Speaker's in this position of authority. And you begin to wonder if if you know down the line that Tris becomes a player manager, uh, not too distant future. How much of this new responsibility, this learning on the fly maybe, contributed towards his ability later on to act as uh, not only just a player, but a player manager. It was an extra level of of difficulty and, and thinking on the job and being able to command men while also being a part of that. So just one of those things to think about. I'm sure there probably could be some sort of book written on that or a, a thesis of some nature. And if you were wondering how Speaker actually did uh, that next day in the paper, it mentioned that Spoke demonstrated he had read the book of instructions given to him by Sergeant Dennis, for he inaugurated some new stuff that Dennis had not even made part of the course. So he was already trying new stuff. Speaker was amped to uh, to get in front of these guys and, you know, run them into the ground a little bit. And for the tribe, opening day is on the road in Detroit. Now, up to that point, that was the largest opening day or actually largest crowd in Detroit Tigers history at 26,000 people in attendance. And as you might have guessed, it was patriotic to the max. There was flags and bunting and also uh, drilling by both teams. And the plane dealer had some great pictures of the players on both sides marching. And again, on, on top of everyone's mind was the U.S. entrance into the war uh, about a week earlier than this game, this game took place. And in the game notes from all of that, it mentioned baseball was king today. And the 26,000 men and women arose to their feet to join in the singing of the Star Spangled Banner. There were bands playing the song and just patriotic fervor everywhere. And not to be outdone, both teams matched back up at Cleveland's League Park for uh, Cleveland's opening day. And as you would imagine, it was again another scene of of patriotism and flags and bunting and fans all amped up for uh, for a baseball game, but also to sing the the, the Star Spangled Banner. And as in Detroit, in Cleveland, both teams also did military drilling. It was mentioned that the teams actually used bats instead of guns. Um, but again, it did mention that uh, the applause of the fans was not a marker to the roar of appreciation that went up when Drillmaster Tris Speaker led his Indians through their formations and the Indians drilled well. It was mentioned, though, that the Detroit team seemed to have the edge on the home players so far as as the drilling was concerned. And as the season rolls on, you begin to see more and more of these news stories about players possibly going over uh, over there. One mention was uh, there was a Columbus surgeon who had trained with the Indians in New Orleans and was actually going to be going with a hospital unit to the French front and said he offered Graney, Chapman, O'Neal, and Evans berths in his squad. But O'Neill replied that when Uncle Sam learned he and Chapman had both been coal miners he would delegate them to dig trenches. And I guess that just didn't seem uh, super appealing to O'Neill. Now, not necessarily World War I related, but during that season, there was actually a, uh, a situation where a speaker got hit in the head with a ball and knocked unconscious. And that was on August, uh, August 13th. And the the trainer, the, the doctor that was there, had mentioned that if that ball was about an inch lower it might have been all up with smoke, which, again, knowing the uh, the nineteen twenty season and what's yet to come, it's one of those situations where uh, the for the, the foreboding or uh, the ominous fact of what's to come is a uh, a bit bit striking. I think. And as Jim had mentioned earlier, that five hundred dollar prize from Van Johnson. When Cleveland was judged, that was August 21st of 1917, and it was judged by a Colonel Raymond Sheldon of the USA, who will come from Chicago this morning, accompanied by President Ban Johnson, who will make the trip with the Army officers to Detroit, Chicago, and St. Louis to inspect the other teams of the league. Now, unfortunately for Tris Speaker, he was still sitting on the bench, they mentioned, actually in civilian clothing, because of taking that ball to the head, so it wasn't quite sure if he was going to be able to Participate in the drilling. And it's around this time that you start seeing more and more guys begin to be drafted. On August 24th, it was mentioned that Ed Klepfer, the Pennsylvania captain of industry, who says he will land a commission before the war is much older, was one. Elmer Smith, the famous Yankee nemesis, is another. All Elmer did was smash out a two-sacker, drive in one run, and score another. Joe Harris is the third of the triumphant. Outside of playing first base very skillfully, Joe made three hits and drove in two runs. Speaker returned. So again, that was part of a uh, a game recap against the Yankees, and it it adds that extra bit of these guys are, are not much longer for the team. They have their notices, and eventually they're going to be uh, not on the team anymore, but they're doing good stuff right now. And it seems that most guys were pretty resigned to the fact that You know, things may not be in my control anymore. Uh, In September, Elmer Smith said, I've been accepted for service and will go if they call me, but I'm hoping they won't call until the baseball season ends. And as the 1917 season winds down, you begin to have players that haven't been drafted or aren't in the service taking on a a larger role, uh, especially with someone like Tris Speaker, where... um, you know, he starts getting into the bond drive. And again, in my interview with Jim, he mentioned Speaker's role.
0: Sure. There were there were red there were Red Cross drives, there were bond drives, all that type of thing. Uh Tris Speaker was very heavily involved in the bond drive. I think it was in the fall of nineteen seventeen uh uh he was on the platform with the uh Treasury Secretary selling bonds and and Speaker himself bought uh Uh, I don't remember the the denomination of the bond, but it was a big one, and it it got a lot of uh, press at the time.
1: And that specific bond took place at the end of September 1917, and the plane dealer mentioned. After introductory remarks by Secretary McAdoo, D.W. Wills will hand the distinguished visitor a $1,000 bond made out to Trist Speaker. The baseball star will step forward, present Mr. McAdoo with his check for $1,000, the first official sale of the second Liberty loan of 1917 will be duly recorded. And in the language of campaign officials, the lid will be off in the grand big picture of, of history somewhere. It was mentioned that the plane dealer cameras or the plane dealer movies recorded this whole event. Now, was this ever saved? Is it in a closet somewhere or in an attic? Uh, But it's one of those lost history moments that, Man, that would be really neat to uh, to see Speaker and this whole event. Obviously, it touches on local history as well as world history, um, but no uh, no sign of that. During this time, again, it wasn't a surprise to see guys being drafted or joining. Uh, Chester Torkelson, who was part of the club, uh, was learning how to fight, as the plane dealer said, and there was also Clark Dickerson and Louis Guisto, was a prospect. The Indians were pretty high on at first base. It mentioned that uh, Chester got his call while on duck hunting expedition, and yet he, he had to hustle back to Chicago to join the Illinois National Army men. On December sixteenth, nineteen seventeen, Elmer Smith, it was mentioned, had been called to the draft, and it was noted that he would report to Camp Sherman in Chillicothe. Uh, it says if Uncle Sam retains him, he will be greatly missed by the club and the fans as well, but. And uh, I don't know if they were trying to make light or if it was just the uh, the writing style at the time. But it did mention that. But Elmer has a great whip and should be a wonder when it comes to throwing hand grenades. So, again, uh, yeah. Towards the end of the year, Clark Dickerson was actually promoted to the rank of sergeant at Camp Travis in San Antonio. It was mentioned that the tall Texan was one of the best that Captain Jake Baker had in the Indian Squad last season when it came to military drill. It was an interesting note that the examination board declared him to be the best specimen of physical development and perfect health they had had up to that point. So, uh, you know, Clark had it put together pretty well. He was a uh, a picture of perfect health.
0: Well, the, there were several enlistments uh, during 1917. Not not a huge number. Um, Active ball players didn't begin to get draft notices till uh, August, I believe it was and on into the into the fall, so it was really spring training nineteen eighteen when you began to notice the absences. There were something like seventy six ball players uh, already in the service when uh, nineteen eighteen spring training began and and that accelerated through through the season
1: and Almost immediately in January of 1918, in the Plain Dealer, it had mentioned four members of the Cleveland Baseball Club placed into Class 1 of the draft. And these four players were Rother, Klepfer, Harris, and Lunt. And they were all, again, subject to the draft, but again, none of them were ever ordered to report, each having been directed to hold himself ready to join the colors on 24-hour notice. And with players, again, being drafted, you start to wonder what the future for baseball is like. They, in the Plain Dealer, have a snippet from an address from President Wilson, and he had mentioned, I hope that sports will be continued so far as possible as a real contribution to the national defense for our young men must be made physically fit and exhibit the vigor and alertness which we are so proud to believe to be characteristics of young men. And the, the sports editor of the paper went so far as to figure out if baseball players were actually doing their part. And he was uh, he found out, he said, and I found there was enough big league baseball players now in the service and more to form an eight team league. So ball players were doing their share enough so that they could form their own team with the amount of players that were serving the country. Again, during this period, you have so many of these players writing letters that get published in the paper. And I, I think they're fascinating to actually hear the words versus, you know, a sports writer kind of paraphrasing. And uh Lambeth had mentioned, I've tried to get into the aviation branch of the service, but failed to measure up to some of the requirements. So I am waiting now until called the service. He also goes on to talk about how uh, you know, some say baseball is not looking promising this season. He said, I think we can hope for the best. As we know, Toronto did well last year, despite the ravages of war in Canada. I think the big leagues will have a successful year. In another letter, uh, Sergeant Dickerson says, would like to be with the bunch at New Orleans again, but when the other boys are hurling them across the plate this summer, I will be pitching them across the Hindenburg line a fascinating player from this era is a guy named Joe Harris. He had played, I think it was two games for the New York Yankees in 1914, and then the Tribe picks him up and in 1917 he ends up playing over 100 games. Now, with with Joe, he was a first baseman and he goes on to have just a weird set of of luck, but just a fascinating story and some of it goes um uh, after he leaves Cleveland. So if you're interested, check out his Sabre bio. Uh, if you've got a baseball reference, you can click on that, or you can uh, just Google Joe Harris, and I'm sure you'll you'll find something. But nevertheless, when he gets to the headquarters of the uh, 320th Infantry at Camp Lee in, in Petersburg, he uh, gets inoculated and then immediately is knocked, uh, knocked out of commission. He has a, a reaction to the inoculation. So, you know, strike one, I mean, coming in and getting knocked in your butt already, it just can't be a great omen. And after he recovers from that, the paper mentioned he uh, was actually sent back to the hospital suffering from neuralgia. But Joe seemed to remain pretty upbeat about everything. And we'll talk about him a little more in the end of the podcast. And with the 1918 season rolling along, uh, end of April, Tris Speaker and Jack Rainey participate in Liberty Loan Day, and there's other events where Speaker and Chapman are involved in. And by June of that year, things start to get a little more real. Smokey Joe Wood mentioned he received an official card from Sergeant Ed Klepfer, 319th Infantry. Uh, He was over there. He was in Europe. His ship had sailed and reached safely to the other side. So um, you mentioned he didn't know if Joe Harris was there yet. He probably was. But uh, at the end of it, it said that both guys are preparing for the biggest game there is. And uh, I guess that's that's one way to describe it. But back at home, there were still things that teams were doing to help boost morale and, and help soldiers that were over in Europe. One notable event was the Bad Ball Fund, and I'll let Jim describe that a little better than I could.
0: Uh, There there was quite a a lot of that. Uh, There was an uptick in in, uh, uh, patriotism, and uh, one of the great uh, successful war charities was Clark Griffiths. Uh, ball and bat fund uh griffiths was was the manager and part owner of the the senators or the nationals or which, whichever you want to call them they answer to both at the time so when the war started he he began a, a fund uh to collect money to buy uh baseball equipment for uh, uh the troops both at home and uh, and overseas and it really snowballed on him and became a a, a huge uh Uh, program and a very successful program so uh, during both seasons uh, there were regular days when uh, the ballpark owners uh, collected for the ball and bat fund
1: for cleveland that bat and ball fund game was june 17th of 1918 it was business manager es barnard who really spearheaded the event one of the things he wanted to do was invite the Naval Reserves and their band to the game as guests of the organization. And for this game, 25% of the club's share of the receipts were going to go towards the uh, Clark Griffin's fund to purchase baseball equipment for soldiers and sailors. When the tribe visited Washington in July of 1918, in the series against the Senators, it was big news when Trish Speaker made headlines when he wanted to become a flyer in the service of the Navy, Cleveland star outfielder to try for commission as naval aviator. And what Speaker did was make preliminary arrangements to become a naval aviator. He obtained his application blank this afternoon, the paper said, and in his hopes that it will lead to a commission. Speaker was on record saying, but commission or not, I want to get into the Aviation Corps. I prefer the naval section as I want to get even with some of the German submarines for the cowardly deeds they have committed in sinking unarmed liners and hospital ships without warning. I know of no branch of the service in which I can get quicker and more emphatic results than by operating a seaplane. And if I am not mistaken, the seaplanes will do a lot of good towards ending the war. So speaker was was riled up you can tell by his comments that he really wanted to help the cause. And again, I'm no world war 1 expert, but you look at the lifespan of World War 1 pilots and uh it just was something that who you know, you really had to have the guts to do because you think about it, the Wright brothers didn't start flying until 1903. So you're you're not even two decades from the first flight and uh you know, it wasn't the most sophisticated sort of uh of aircraft. And speaker's really on that other end of the draft age. Just he had just turned 30 that season, so he's really up there. The plane dealer ends its story. Being courageous as well as brainy, there's no reason to believe that he will fail to achieve success. I mean, I guess if you know, you're a guy that breaks his arm, decides to throw with your other arm and become proficient in that really the sky's the limit in what you can accomplish. And by the end of July, it really comes to a head of what's the future for baseball. And here is another excerpt from my interview with Jim Leake.
0: Um Yeah. It started of 1918. If you didn't have uh, your draft notice to report, uh, you could, you could still play ball. And uh, most did, as you say, uh, some, there were some investments, not a, not a huge number, I think there were probably as many former ball players who enlisted as active ball players, which is understandable. You know, um, and managers pointed out at the time that ball players didn't have a very long careers, so they were reluctant to uh, give up a year or two or however long it was going to be. They didn't know, so most um, waited to get their draft uh, notices as as most uh, young American males did, really. That was that was just that was the choice. You mentioned uh, Newton Baker. Uh, the government came out what was called co- what was called the Worker Fight Rule in, in May 1918, uh, which was telling uh, young American males, uh, unless you're in certain uh, essential occupations, um, you're either going to work in war work in war industries, or uh, you're going to be in the uh, armed forces. <laughs> So that that, uh, rule just hit like a thunderstorm uh, in the summer of 1918, though there were lots of questions. uh, It wasn't clear uh, right away whether that pertained to baseball. Uh, Was baseball an essential occupation? Well, they finally decided, no, it wasn't an essential occupation. So then the question was, okay, when does it apply to baseball? And uh, after a lot of uh, deliberations and and dithering, they decided, okay, uh, Labor Day, September 2nd, that's when uh, it will apply to baseball. So that's when baseball was going to end. So then the question was, okay, can we play the World Series? So after more deliberations, they just said, yes, the two teams can play the World Series, an early World Series, um, but as soon as it's over, whoever is uh, eligible uh, you know, is in the draft and, and has to report. And all the other ball players uh, had to be working or in uh, the service uh, at Labor Day. So that's that's why you had the early end of the – to the season in 1918 in the early World
1: Series. And as Jim mentioned, there's just a lot of uncertainty and trying to figure out what's essential, what's not. And it got to a point where in July, uh, players weren't sure if the the season was going to continue on past that. In the July 20th Plain Dealer, it was mentioned that baseball is declared non-essential. Secretary of War decides players in draft age must obey work or fight ruling. Tris Speaker was the spokesman of one bunch, arguing it is best to sit tight and say or do nothing until a positive order is issued, notifying the two leagues to close. And for Indians owner Jim Dunn, I mean, he was ready to, to close everything on July 21st of 1918. It had mentioned that league ball season ends in city today. Dunn ordered closing of park after games in Cleveland. Magnates to meet here tomorrow. League may suspend. A National organization to act soon on work or fight order. So again, as again Jim mentioned, there's this, this dithering of well, what's going to happen. How are we going to are we going to finish the season? Is it going to stop now? Are players going to be drafted? And there was things that needed to be sorted out. And Jim does a a good job of of kind of summarizing what the gist of all that was, that the season was going to end early and there was going to be an early World Series. But by the time everyone regrouped by July 25th, Bill Womby was already gone. He went back home to Fort Wayne where he was ordered by the draft board to go to Camp Taylor. So, again, things start, not to say crumbling is the right word, but things start moving a little bit quicker. So things were settled a little bit uh, more in concrete. And by August, Ed Klepfer, who had been serving overseas, sent a letter to Steve O'Neill. And in that letter, he said, Well, Steve, I've been over the top and have come back without being hit. I was a member of a scouting squad. Steve, you know how it feels when you are up at bat and Walter Johnson buzzes one of his fast ones by your ears? Well, that's how it feels when the Germans are trying to pick you off. It's sure a great sensation. That of being fired at by someone you know means it. And by mid August, Indians owner Jim Dunn is still a little upset that they're playing. He mentioned that he thought playing past Labor Day was wrong. He was quoted as saying, winning the war must come ahead of winning championships. And for that reason, I still favor bringing our season to a close on August 20th. So not only are the Indians in a pennant race, but a lot of these guys have a lot more pressing issues on their on their minds. Speaker himself was pretty worried about his future in naval aviation. Uh, the plane dealer had a story, it said. Spoke told him what experiences he had in driving automobiles and that he had made several flights in airplanes. But Speaker said, I'm afraid the book test will knock me out because I never went to college and it is several years since I left school, said Spoke. Don't let that worry you, said the officer. The physical examination at the start and the actual flying practice are the tough parts. Speaker responded, then I will stop worrying. Just as simple as that. And he said, for I know I will pass the physical test and I know I can master the flying end of it. And then it wasn't until the next week that he actually filed his application for the Naval Aviation Service. Then a week later, Guy Morton leaves the tribe for uh, Uncle Sam's call to join the service. As the season's winding down in that September 1st paper, it goes on to say the Indians will soon have 16 stars on the service flag in reference to the players that have gone overseas. And interestingly enough, one of the, uh, wasn't a player, um, but the head usher at League Park, Tom Herbert, he was one of the first to respond to the call. He was lieutenant in the Aviation Corps in France. He was actually injured while serving and uh Long or big picture of it all is, he became governor of Ohio later down the road. So one of those unique stories through all of this that uh, the f- uh, former head usher at League Park became governor of Ohio. And again, the the Indians were in contention towards the end of the season. They only finished a couple of games behind the Red Sox, but once they were eliminated uh, from the World Series. At that game, President Dunn climbed to the press stand and there announced that the season of the Indians would close on the morrow, that the team would be disbanded here and there would be no jaunt to St. Louis, despite the schedule. And in early October, it was announced that Speaker had gotten into the Naval Aviation uh, program. By late October, we started to hear from Elmer Smith who actually was playing baseball overseas, he wrote that he had been touring behind the lines as a member of the all-star team picked from the entire army and incidentally teaching French soldiers how to play Americans' national game. They are slow to learn, says Elmer. As the rain has set in, we have quit baseball for the season and at last I hope to get into the real fight. He kind of sensed that the war was nearing its end and he said... I guess a few more stiff uppercuts will finish him, referring to the enemy. Perhaps we will have baseball in the United States again next season. And there's some lighthearted moments in the papers as well. When Ed Klepfer gets a promotion to lieutenant, the paper mentioned, should handsome Ed Klepfer of the Indians happen to run across Louis Guisto, Red Torkelson, Otis Lamberth, Elmer Smith, Joe Harris, or even Tris Speaker or Ray Chapman? His former teammates, each of the latter, would have to salute him and obey any reasonable order that Big Ed would issue for the Lumberman Hurler, now as a second lieutenant in Uncle Sam's army in France. And it was around this time that Joe Harris wrote a letter to Henry P. Edwards, the Plain Dealer sports staff editor. Dear Henry, I have seen some wonderful sights and had some terrible experiences was up to the line for 15 days and bid old Cleveland goodbye more than once as I thought there was not much chance of my ever wearing a Cleveland uniform again. I have faced Walter a few times on dark days, but he has nothing to what those Germans are with their big guns and machine guns. got caught between our barrage and the Germans one morning and thought I would have to face old Nick before the morning was over. But I guess God was on my side. At any rate, he pulled me through. At present, I am 35 miles behind the Germans and don't think I will get in again for a long time to come, and perhaps never, as this war is not much longer to last, as the American boys are showing old Bill how it ought to be done. Can't tell you just what front we were on, but it sure has been a busy one for a couple days. Everything our division started out to take, it took. I have not seen Big Ed Klepfer for a long time, as he was at officer's training school for three months and just got back. He got his commission as a second lieutenant. Can you imagine me having to salute him? I was mighty glad to hear of his promotion. They made me a sergeant during our last drive and offered to give me a chance at the officer's training camp, but I think I will stick with the boys I am with now. We all are figuring on being home by spring, so you will want to tell Lee Full that he will have a strong candidate for the old first sack, as I think the army has fixed my feet and legs all right. If you happen to put this in the plane dealer, put my address in it also, as there are many be a friend or so in Cleveland who will be good enough to write. Best wishes, Sergeant Moon. Again, it's it's really neat to actually have the words that these guys were writing while they were over in Europe. And uh, who knows if these actual letters even exist anymore, if they're in a scrapbook somewhere or just lost to history. But at least we're able to to capture some of this with the old newspapers. At the end of November, there's a, a fascinating article about Tris Speaker in his his naval aviation school. He's at MIT in Massachusetts, learning the ins and outs, and it gives a rundown of his average day as a, a student, more or less. And also, really harps on the the pay decrease he took. Um, but it said he's getting along well. It said he was a skilled auto driver, a fair mechanic, keen on mental arithmetic, which is an essential requirement. While his reputation as a ball player will also help. Tris was known as a quick thinking athlete, and if a man has to do quick thinking in any branch of the service, it is aviation. So again, speaker was was moving along swimmingly. This article was written November third of nineteen eighteen. Now, if you know anything about World War One, it ended on eleven eleven, uh, so it wasn't much longer before the war was over. But that article did end with speaker will remain at Boston Tech for two or three months while when he will have completed his ground courses and be sent somewhere in the South for flying practice. Wally Pipp, the New York first sacker who entered the same school three months ago is about to be sent to Miami to learn to fly. Nevertheless, neither of those gentlemen uh, continued on uh, by November 23rd. It was uh, in the papers that speaker had applied for a discharge along with uh, Wally Pip and were more or less done with their service. Later on, Indians owner Jim Dunn was talking about how proud he was of the work the boys did overseas. He also mentioned he was sorry for Spoke, Wambi, Morton, Chapman, and Billings that they didn't have a chance to get across. But again, I'm sure, at least I don't know if they were brokenhearted about that or not, but nevertheless, the war was over and things were hopefully going to get back to some sense of normalcy. Dunn actually thought that the war will have done at least two players a lot of good, and uh, one of which was first baseman Joe Harris, the other one was Guy Morton, and he said that the physical training was just what they needed. And again, there was more playfulness. Uh, mentioned Wambi uh, of the U.S. Infantry he was home in Cleveland again, having been mustered out of active service and placed on the reserve list. Army life has agreed with the star second sacker of the Indians, He has taken on close to 10 pounds since he went to active service in July. He said, I think I will go over to the Naval Reserve's headquarters tomorrow, for I want to see Chapman and Billings salute me. And as the war ends, more information starts to trickle in. On Christmas Eve, the paper reported that Ed Klepfer is engaged in the last big battle of the war, but the big picture says nothing about being badly wounded Actually, to the contrary, he wants to be in spring training and wants to let everyone know he's okay. He goes on to say, it would have done your heart good to see those boys of mine fight. He also mentioned he had not seen Joe Harris in several weeks, but he hoped he survived his last scrap. So again, the, the lines of communication are a bit slower then. By the end of December, it was announced that Joe Harris and Elmer Smith were both unscathed. And again, a letter from uh, Lieutenant Klepfer, he mentioned, he had a long talk with Joe Harris and Billy Nixon a few days ago. We played a few games over again. My outfit was on its way back to the last battle of the war, and it was an appreciated bit of relaxation to get together with two of the boys and talk about something besides war. All the boys are anxious to get home now that the war has ended, but I guess it'll be some time before all of us get back. I am glad the war has ended, of course, but at the same time, I am glad I was through it. As I told you in my last letter, I was a scout and sniper officer during our last campaign, which meant that I commanded the battalion scouts, snipers, and observers. I'm very proud of my boys. They went through the mill with me bravely. And again, as these guys had more time on their hands since the war was over, Joe Harris wrote to Lee Full, the manager of the Indians, and he said, I used to think it a long way around the ballpark at New Orleans when you would say, Moon, twice around with you today, but never again will I kick when the, they moved our regiment from the Argonne to Belgium just before the war ended, they made us walk and it was only 150 miles, 150 miles and a pack weighing 40 pounds. Imagine Jim Bagby or Guy Morton making that hike and to think they were going to reject me because I had flat feet. But they sure were flat when we finished those 150 miles. But not everything was was happy. Uh, it was reported in February of 1919 that Luis Guisto was wounded and he had been gassed in the war and more or less his career never materialized after that. He had issues from the gassing. Uh, again, harking back to the the Sabre bios, there's a very detailed one. Uh, if you go to his baseball reference page and click on that, uh, he just couldn't get it going and and couldn't stay in certain climates and his career really suffered because of of what had happened in the war. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Joe Harris, uh, just a guy with just weird, I don't know if it's called luck, but it was weird, uh, a weird story, so to speak. So he makes it through the war more or less unscathed. But by May 12th, 1919, there was an article in The Plain Dealer that said, Hope Harris's injuries are exaggerated. And so the tribe was really hoping that the news from France to the effect that first baseman Joe Harris had been seriously injured in a motor truck accident is untrue or at least exaggerated, and that Joe was not so hurt that he cannot rejoin the team this season. Uh, the report that came back mentioned he had a skull fractured and both legs and three ribs broken. And again, if that's true, he, he wasn't going to be playing baseball in the near term. But Joe actually sent a letter saying, I'm dropping you a line to let you know your dandy first sacker is very much on the blink and scarcely able to play any baseball this coming summer. An auto ambulance turned over on a bunch of us on March 29th. And I was one of the unfortunate ones to get busted up a little. He goes on to say that he had an injury to his left temple that just missed his eye. And he went on to also say, I think I have a fractured skull. And to quote him again, I think it is going to take a long time for it to heal up. So if you are figuring on me for use early in the summer, you better look elsewhere for a man. It was sure hard luck on my part for my division arrived two days after I was hurt towards a seaport to leave for home by the last of this month. I don't think there is a chance for me to leave with the rest of uh, us, but there is a possibility of me joining you on the first eastern trip in June. So don't be surprised if Old Moon drops in on you by that time. Saw a few of your accounts of your games in New Orleans, and they made me homesick. By the time this gets to you, I suppose Big Ed will be with you. With regards to all the boys. In case you were wondering, Joe was actually able to make it back to the club and got his first uh, game action on June 30th of 1919. And he actually went on to have a heck of a career. He actually received MVP votes while with Boston in the early part of the 1920s. And what did the 1919 season have in store for the Cleveland Indians? Join us next time on Our Tribe History. And a special thanks to Jim Leake, author of From the Dugouts to the Trenches, Baseball During the Great War, for joining me on the podcast.
0: You've been listening to Our Tribe History with Indians team historian Jeremy Fedor.